As you're having a seat, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 36. When I was in grade school, we got the word that we were probably going to have a, a snow day the following day. Now, you remember, uh, I grew up where there was real snow. All right, we didn't make slushmen. We made like real snowmen. And it was upstate New York. We could, get, we could get a lot of snow really fast. And so we were told, storm's coming in, probably won't have school tomorrow. And I remember when I went to bed that night, I could hardly sleep. So excited thinking about the snow coming and wouldn't go to school and get to play outside. And so, you know, finally went to sleep and I woke up in the morning, just popped out of bed. I went to my window and there was nothing. It's like, oh. I turned on the radio. I still remember WTKO 1240. You know, I'm listening to the AM radio station thinking maybe, maybe, you know, it's going to come later and they'll announce nothing. No, no snow day. So I got ready begrudgingly and walked up the hill as I tell my kids up the hill. Not through the snow that day, but up the hill, waited for bus, went to school, and we were all bummed. You know, we were all disappointed all day long. And about halfway through the day, teacher said, pack your things, put on your boots, you're going home. Like, what? Yeah, well, apparently, the storm they thought was coming through that then didn't come through now was coming through, and they were sending us home so that we wouldn't get stranded at school or stranded on the bus. And so we all grab our stuff, put on our boots, get on the bus. And as we're, we're riding home on the bus, the snow begins to fall, you know, big, huge flakes, and it's landing everywhere and already starting to pile up. And I got to my house, the snow is falling. I, I threw my stuff inside, put on my, my snow clothes, and went outside and just played all day. I had nothing to do but play. It was it was an amazing day. I still remember that wonderful feeling. You know, just the, I, I've always loved the beauty of the snow, but not going to school and, you know, not having to go to school and just getting to just play. It was a great day. So I remember, yeah, I heard that. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I took my kids, Tristan, I loaded them up this spring break. They had never seen snow. But they thought they'd seen snow, but they never seen snow, snow. So I said, all right, we're going to Colorado. And we're driving to Colorado. I said, you're just going to love this. This is amazing. You've never, you've never seen anything like it. So we drove up into the mountains. And there's a little snow, and then there's more snow, and then there's a lot of snow. I remember that first day when we drove into the ski area, and there's snow everywhere, right? And there's snow in the trees. And, and, and they got out of the car. I go, what do you think? What do you think? Isn't this great? You know? And they were just oh, dad, this is awesome. It's amazing. And, you know, we built snow forts and we had snowball fights and, and went sledding and built snowmen. And it was just, it was amazing. And I loved for my kids that sense of awe and wonder. And I loved getting to, to experience it again as I watched their faces just light up. Man, this is life. This is great. But I was thinking about the resurrection this week. And I thought, you know, probably it's not an exaggeration to say that, that, The best day, the day that was filled with the most amazing sense of awe and wonder was that that first Easter morning. The disciples woke up disappointed, discouraged, and then their entire lives were turned around. They woke up having life just completely unraveled because of the death of their, their beloved teacher and rabbi, Jesus. But then he came to them and he said, touch me. I'm alive. And their entire day was turned around. Their entire lives were turned around on that day. A sense of awe and wonder that we get to revisit and relive every Easter morning. I want you to turn with me 
the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read one of the appearance accounts and relive with the disciples that sense of awe and wonder where they realized the resurrection of Jesus provided everything that they needed and everything that they wanted in life. Verse 36. It says, while they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. What I love about these appearance accounts is that Jesus' first concern is with the troubled hearts of his disciples. Jesus cares about them. See, death is a a horrible thing. We interact with death so frequently that we forget that it's completely unnatural. God made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden and they were not intended to die. It was something alien, something foreign, something completely unnatural to human experience and that's why it's so revolting to us it's a horrible horrible thing and Jesus whom they loved hadn't just died but they had seen him be tortured and suffer and then be crucified their lives had just fallen apart and the only hope the only hope when we face death squarely the only hope and the only comfort is resurrection a couple of years ago a friend of mine heard this advertisement on the radio. It was an ad for a, a department store. It said this. For some people, Easter is about colors. For kids, it's all about the hunt. It's the promise of the spring harvest. It means making potato recipes. <laughs> That's not just bad writing. That's just terrible in every respect, you know? We can distract ourselves from the horror of death, even on Easter. We can surround ourselves with bunnies and eggs and chocolate and try to pretend that death isn't horrible, but when we face death squarely, the only comfort is the hope of resurrection. But I want us to back up for a moment. Why, why was resurrection so surprising for the apostles? Jesus had told them about it. So why were they so shocked and confused? Notice verse 37. It says they were startled, they were frightened, They thought they were seeing a ghost. All that they could do to explain the presence of this one that looked like Jesus in their midst was that he must be a disembodied spirit. Of course, they'd never seen a disembodied spirit before, but that's the only explanation we can come up with. Notice earlier in the chapter, the first appearance, verse 1, says, On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Women were terrified. They bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified the third day and rise again. Then they remembered, then they returned, and then they told the other apostles. These women came back and they said, He's risen, the tomb is empty. Verse 11, it says, But these words appeared to them, that is the apostles, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. 
The word for nonsense there is used in the medical world of hysteria. They were delusional. Why was it? Because it was a group of men who were listening to women? Well, no, that, that doesn't explain it, although that is one of the things that validates the historicity of this account because women's testimony was not valued very much. And yet the gospel writers say, no, it was women that Jesus appeared to first and the women told them and they thought they were hysterical. They're delusional. Why is it? Even though Jesus had told them ahead of time that he would rise from the dead, how is it that they could not believe? They were so amazed. It's because there was nothing in their worldview to explain resurrection. Remember, the Jews in the first century didn't believe in the idea of a crucified Messiah. There had been many Messiahs, actually, that had popped up here and there, and each one of them had been killed, and the death of that Messiah proved that that was a false Messiah. There was no room for a crucified Messiah, and if there couldn't be a crucified Messiah, then there couldn't be a resurrected Messiah, right? But not only that, they really didn't have a concept of personal, individual, immediate resurrection. Many of the Jews believed in a resurrection someday, At the end of the age, there would be a resurrection of all of the righteous, but that one man would be resurrected himself alone immediately? No. There was no concept. There was nothing in their worldview, and they couldn't borrow it from the Greeks. Because the Greeks didn't believe in resurrection either. Most Greeks didn't believe in an afterlife. If there was an afterlife, it was really bad. A few believed in a good afterlife that no one would want to return from, but no one believed that you could die and actually come back. Remember when Paul went to Athens and he began to preach about the resurrection, they thought he was talking about a new God called resurrection. And when they discovered that he was actually talking about people rising from the dead, they laughed at him and thought he was insane. See, disciples had had no worldview in which to put resurrection. And so even though Jesus taught them over and over and over again about resurrection, it never connected for them. And so Jesus shows up in their midst and he says, touch me. Let me comfort your hearts by proving to you that I am real. So on that first Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. And in fact, everyone agreed that the tomb was empty. Those who would later believe and those who disbelieved. The problem was no one could explain why is the tomb empty. Jesus said, let me explain to you why the tomb is empty because I'm here. The Jews who disbelieved made up a story. They said, no, the disciples came and they stole the body away while the guards were sleeping. But we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would the disciples come and steal the body away when they didn't believe in the resurrection? And why would they steal the body, hide it, and then go out and tell a lie and all of them die for a lie? You recall that all the apostles died for the resurrection. Except John, he got off easy. He was only boiled in oil. Why would they do it? We also have to ask ourselves, how? How would it be possible that these 11 frightened men could steal the body when it was guarded by Roman soldiers? I want to help you visualize again what this tomb may have looked like. This is not the tomb where Jesus lay. We're not sure where that tomb was. This is a first century tomb that's carved in the side of the rock by a roadside. And you'll notice the stone is rolled up and away. 
there's a, a channel or a slot down which that sto- stone would roll and it would lodge itself in front of the tomb. Then the tomb would be sealed, seal of Rome. Whoever breaks that seal will die. In the case of Jesus in particular, that tomb was guarded by 16 Roman soldiers. To give you a sense of how large these stones could be, this is a friend of mine, he's about 6'3". That's a small stone on the left, but you can imagine how many men would be required. So what we're told to believe was that these 11 frightened men broke through a Roman guard of 16. And at night, 12 of the men would be asleep. They would sleep in a semicircle around the four who were on duty. And we're, we, we must believe that these 11 frightened men snuck through the 12 who were sleeping, overpowered four killing machines, quietly rolled the stone away so the other 12 wouldn't wake up, got the body out, and then tiptoed out through those 12 sleeping Roman guards who would lose their lives if they failed in their duty. No, that's simply, it's not possible. It's not logical. The possibility is that the Jews themselves took the body, but again, we ask ourselves, why? Why would the Jews take the body? They wanted the body to be in the grave so that no one would follow Jesus. Uh, The Romans, did the Romans take the body? No, the Romans didn't want the body out of the grave because they didn't want an insurrection to rise up, a following after this false Messiah. The only other theory that was ever presented was that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. If that's the case, I imagine that the Jews and the Romans would have led people by the hand and say, no, there's the guard, there's the tomb, there's the body. Let's not discuss this any further. How do you explain the empty tomb? Jesus says, here's how I'll explain the empty tomb. Touch me. Touch me. And realize that I have risen from the dead, never to die again. Not only that, verse 41, Jesus says, Let's share a meal together. Verse 41, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. In other words, he took the fish and he begins to eat and they're all just standing around staring at Jesus eating. What? What? You know, I love fish. It's just such a, a crazy scene. Jesus isn't, though, just demonstrating that he has physically, bodily risen from the dead. He is inviting them back into fellowship. Remember, in the Eastern culture, the meal is fellowship. These men are grieving because they have lost the one that they loved, but they are also feeling shame and guilt because they abandoned the one that they had loved. The one that they said, no, Jesus, we will go to death for you. But instead, they all ran away. And so I I assure you, when they first saw him, there was wonder, amazement, confusion, but also shame. And Jesus says, come, let's eat. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. All that they needed, the resurrection provided. And Jesus is wanting to move them out of their grief into comfort, encouragement, strength so that he can commission them and they will go out and be witnesses and proclaim the resurrection from the dead. And so he moves them out of their grief into understanding and confidence. Read with me verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Notice what it says in verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. That word for understand was used of Homer, of two rivers that converged. The joining of rivers, the idea is uh, putting the pieces together. In other words, he says to them, remember, I gave you all of the pieces to the puzzle. Now, let me put them together for you. Your minds and your hearts were darkened because your expectation of Messiah was false. He first had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. He first had to conquer sin and death, and then he'll return and reign. But you couldn't put those pieces together. You had all of them, but now let me help you understand what they mean. And what was it that Jesus taught them? Verse 44, again, it says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all of these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Three divisions. Three divisions of the Jewish Bible, Torah. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, Luke says, it's really not important to me to tell you right now exactly what Jesus taught, but what I want you to understand is that through the entire Bible, from Genesis to Malachi, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of it was pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus would spend hours, he would spend days teaching them from the law and the Psalms and the prophets that everything was pointing to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, to his ascension, that he was, in fact, Messiah. In other words, they needed truth, not just comfort. So what did he teach them? Well, you know, if we look back at Jesus' teachings earlier, we get a few clues. I want to just illustrate this for you. If you go back through your own gospel writings and you highlight everywhere that you see Jesus teaching from the law and the prophets and the Psalms, you'll get an idea of what he taught. I think he taught the same things. I want to just illustrate for you this morning three passages. John chapter 3, Jesus quoted from Numbers 21. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus quoting from Numbers chapter 21. This is uh, the event where the children of Israel were rescued from the exodus. They came out of Egypt. They came into the wilderness as God is about to lead lead them into the promised land. But they rebel against God, and because of their rebellion, God disciplines them with snakes. The snakes are biting them, and some of them are dying, and they cry out to the Lord, Lord, deliver us. And he tells Moses, here's how I want you to give them my deliverance. I want you to to, to make an image of a serpent and put it on a stick in the middle of the people. And when they look at that serpent, they will live. The people must have thought, what in the world? Serpent is is a symbol of Satan. Serpent's a symbol of of the ultimate curse of of death. Serpent's a symbol of what's afflicting us right now and killing us and causing us to die. Why would we look at the serpent? There's no explanation in the book of Numbers. The people just realize we need to look. And so as they're bit, they look and they live. And Jesus says, that's me. Jesus says, that's me. I, I am that serpent lifted on a stick. Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took upon himself the curse of sin and death. He became not just a symbol, but the actual object 
of the curse of sin and death so that God looked on him and all of the sin of all of the world was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And so anyone who looks at him sees his own sin transferred to Jesus so that he doesn't have to die. Jesus died in our place. Jesus says, that's me. I suspect that's one of the passages Jesus brought up to them again. From the prophets, Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 53. I tell you that that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Isaiah 53 is the servant psalm. And for generations, the Jewish people thought that this must refer to us. We must be the servant. And Jesus says, no, I'm the servant. I'm the one who takes on the transgressions of others, even though I am innocent, like a lamb led to the slaughter, not raising up my voice, not crying out, not defending myself, but instead taking the punishment and the guilt for others. And God has accepted my sacrifice so that all sin is paid for. And as a result of my sacrifice, God will exalt me and I will be ruler over all. Jesus says, that is fulfilled in me. From the Psalms, Peter's first sermon, he bases on Psalm 16. It says, David looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter's first sermon, standing in Jerusalem, he says, you know, David is still here. His bones are right there. And he points to the tomb of the kings and he says, the bones are there. David did die. So when David spoke of resurrection, of not being abandoned to Hades, David was not speaking of himself. David was speaking of the Christ. And we are witnesses that Jesus rose from the dead. This is true. They didn't need just emotional comfort. They needed absolute truth. They needed the truth of the resurrection. You know, I've been to some really depressing funerals before. I've been at funerals where the resurrection isn't even mentioned. I don't know if the pastor doesn't know about the resurrection or doesn't believe in the resurrection. And, you know, rarely do I feel like I need to just like jump up and take the mic. But every once in a while at a funeral or at a wedding, I go, man, you need to sit down and let me take over. You know, I'm just, ah, I'm just dying here. And the pastor will talk about, oh, you know, sweet, kind Uncle Jimmy. Well, he, was, he was such a good man. He did so many good things. We need to learn from Jimmy's example. You know, because Jimmy, Jimmy lives on in our hearts and our memories. I want to go, man, if Jimmy's only living in my heart or my memory, Jimmy's in trouble, right? Jimmy needs more than that. And if any of us are only living in hearts and minds and memories of others, we are in deep trouble. No, what we need is the resurrection. And so Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, can we leave the funeral and go to the party, and I hope there's good food and a lot of wine. Let's party hard. Because this is the end of the story. There's nothing more. But Paul says, no, 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 no. But there is resurrection. And so there is hope. Because Jesus won. Jesus won. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He took away sin and replaced it with righteousness. He took away death and replaced it with uh, life. He, He took away sorrow and replaced it with joy. Jesus won. Let me illustrate for you. Let me illustrate. Have you ever tried to exchange anything in your life? You know, you buy the wrong size and try and take it back for another size. Or you get it home and you realize there's a tear in it. Or you bring something home and it works for like an hour, you know, when your kid's toys and then it breaks and you got to take it back. You ever try to do that? I always lose, right? <laughs> I, never, I never win those exchanges. It's frustrating. I'll, I'll take it in and they'll say, oh, you know, warranty is expired or no, there's supposed to be a tear there or, right, you know, or, 
no, your, your receipt is old. It, you know, oh yeah, we'll give you another one, but it's going to cost you three times as much. Price just went up. I mean, I, just, I always lose. It, it just makes me crazy. My mom always wins. She always has. She always will. When I try and then I fail, I go, mom? I mean, even now, I call her up, mom, could you help? You know, I, I can't win. And my mom always wins, like, right? She'll go in, she'll turn in the shirt, and they'll give her two shirts, right? <laughs> or they'll say, here, here, here are two shirts and a gift card and a written apology, and can we put your picture? You're our favorite customer, right? I go, mom, what is, how does that work? She always wins, right? The best I ever do is break even, but she makes this exchange, and she comes out better all the time. That's what Jesus has done for us. We give him our sorrow, and he says, here, take my joy. We give him our sin. He says, take my righteousness. We give him our death. He says, take my life. We always come out ahead because of Jesus. Jesus always wins. See, they didn't need just emotional comfort. They needed truth. They needed Jesus to work on their behalf. The resurrection of Jesus, it comforted their hearts. It enlightened their darkened mind. It's true. Jesus, Messiah, would be rejected. He would be crucified. He would be buried. But he would be raised from the dead. And he would ascend on high. And all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms pointed to Jesus. And third, they needed to have their lives empowered. Because their lives were broken. And their lives were aimless. I want you to read with me in verse 45. Luke chapter 24 verse 45 says then he opened up their minds to put the pieces of scripture together and he said to them thus it is written that the messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from jerusalem you are my witnesses and behold i'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They they had no direction. They they didn't know what to do with their days. And Jesus said, well, let me tell you, here's what you do. Now that I'm resurrected, you just have one calling. Just tell people about the resurrection. That's all you have to do. Just be witnesses. And not only that, but I'm going to empower you. Do you remember, what is the power that he's speaking of? Do you remember? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. And where was the Spirit promised? We studied it in our study of Genesis. The promise was given to Abraham. Paul said that promise of blessing was ultimately the forgiveness of your sins. Not covering over them temporarily with the sacrifice of animals, but the the complete removal of your debt of sin. Justification by faith. That is that you could be declared righteous in right relationship with God simply by believing that Jesus died for your sins. And finally, the promise of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, that your spirit would once again come to life because you were separated from God through the fall. But now when you believe in Jesus, God's spirit comes and lives inside of you again, gives you spiritual life, and you will live forever. This is the promise. He says, wait, wait for God to send that promise of his spirit. They have, they have power. They have direction. Read with me verse, 40, verse 50. He says, then he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, 
returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. They were aimless, they were directionless, they were discouraged, they were beaten down, they felt shame and God, through Jesus Christ, turned all of that around. The resurrection solved all of their problems. All that they most needed, all that they most longed for. They didn't have Jesus physically with them any longer but they had hope and they had joy, they had peace, they had purpose in life. They had all that they needed because of Jesus. Several years ago, there was a missionary who was working among Muslims in Africa. He tells a story about a particular Muslim man that became a Christian. And his friends asked him, he said, why did you become a Christian? You're a Muslim. How could you become a Christian? And the man said this. He said, imagine that you're walking down a road and you come to a fork in the road. And at the fork in the road, you you don't know which way to go, but there are two men. One is dead and one is alive. Which one would you ask directions? Maybe you're at the fork in the road. And you need to decide for Jesus. Maybe God is calling you today to say, no, Jesus, he, he is Messiah. And this was my plan, that Messiah would first suffer as it was predicted in Isaiah 53, that he would suffer and that he would die so that sins could be paid for once and for all. And all that came before was a foreshadowing leading up to this, this perfect sacrifice of my son. Believe in my son. He's paid the debt of your sins. He also rose from the dead, proving that I accepted his sacrifice and that death has been conquered and you can have life that lasts forever. Believe in my son today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the debt of sin has been paid and that we have life in Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would once again, even this morning, experience that sense of wonder and awe that you have raised the dead and that we have hope and confidence and joy and purpose in life because of him. Father, we worship this morning because the cross is empty. Your son came down from the cross and the tomb is empty. He rose from the grave. Father, we thank you that you have conquered sin and death on our behalf and that Jesus Christ has exchanged our sorrow and our fear and our shame for his joy. He's exchanged our sin for his righteousness and our death for his life. Father, I pray that we would have a great confidence in this as we go and bear witness to the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He is risen. Have a great day.